Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Thank you so much for being here. Have you guys ever noticed that this kind of intrinsic behavior of most of us as human beings is that it's easy for us to filter the things that we're hearing and hear what we want to hear? So someone can say something or we can learn something somewhere and we just hear and interpret it the way that we want to hear it. Uh, recently, I saw a great example of this. Um, and uh, I'm kind of ashamed to admit it because it's not like my jam, but I was online and for some reason I got hooked into watching this like eight minute clip of a reality TV show. And it was like one of those like weight loss reality TV shows. I promise I don't judge you if you spend your time watching those, but I promise that I don't. So anyways, um, uh, just kidding. I own them all on DVD. Um, but uh, so anyways, I'm watching this clip, and it's this lady. I have no idea why I'm watching this, but it's this lady who is on the show, and she's saying that she's talking about how she's struggling to lose weight. She's like, there's nothing I can do because she is talking about this metabolic rate issue that she has that makes it just, she's like, I can starve myself. I can do anything, whatever. I just don't lose Wait, so they're like, oh, this seems serious. Let's put her on our TV show. And uh, so they ship her off to this, um, this medical center where they're doing all this research and testing. They got doctors and smart people who know science and things like that that I don't know. And they're doing all this stuff. And so eventually the results are in and she meets with these two doctor dudes and they sit there and they tell her, uh, so we've run the test, we've checked it all out. And what we've discovered is that your metabolism is fine and that it really has to do with diet and exercise habits, what you're eating, you know, your activity level and all that. And so she starts to like ask some questions and, you know, kind of challenge. She's like, well, what about this? What are these kinds of foods? And they're like, no, like, listen, it is not like out of your control. You're just not hearing what we're telling you. And she, you can t- tell she continues to struggle to really accept that and embrace that. And it's like, listen, lady, like from the outside, it's easy to be like, that's crazy, right? Because like these are doctors, they're in like some science medical center, you're on a reality TV show, so it has to be factual. And uh, she's just not really hearing it. And then so she kind of like, okay, kind of accepts some of it. And then they, at the end, they do the kind of shot of just her in a room talking about her journey. And she says, yeah, so went through these tests, met with the doctors, blah, 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 talked about what they said. And she kind of talked, was talking a little bit about what they said. It was a little bit of a translated version into her own mind. But she continued talking. It kind of continued to digress and digress to at the end, she basically was like, yeah, so essentially it's just kind of like a metabolic rate issue and there's not much I can do. I'm sitting there and I just want to be like, are you insane? But then I look at my own life because we all do this, right? It's a lot easier to observe when someone else is doing that. You tell them something, they hear it the way they want to hear it. They kind of filter it in their own way or you you watch them do that. It's a lot easier to watch others do and to observe that with ourselves. We're we're just sneaky. We deceive ourselves in that way. And it's just like, well, but what about this? You know, like, do they really know how many calories are in a pudding pop or like, you know, and so we, we just hear what we want to hear. And I want to challenge you guys over the next few months as we dig through Jesus' greatest tweets and the Sermon on the Mount, 
there's some challenging teachings. And it is really easy to kind of translate these in a way that make more sense for us. It's like, well, Jesus said this, but this is Lloyd Minster, or but this is my job, or like this is who I, you know, it's, it, it, I got to kind of translate it into my life, and I got to fit Jesus's teachings into my life. There are actually some big nerdy theological terms for this. So the first term is exegesis. You don't have to remember, there's no test at the end, but exegesis is reading scripture, the teachings of Jesus, what the Bible says, and taking it at face value, and then letting that pour into your life and change your life. So your life is surrendered to the text. The other one is eisegesis. So the first one's good. Eisegesis, not so good. What eisegesis is doing is making the text surrender to your life. You read it through the lens of, yes, but this is who I am, and I'm not going to change. So the text needs to, the teachings of Jesus need to change to fit my life. And I would challenge you guys, over the next few months, take Jesus' teachings very literally. Some of them this morning and as we continue on, there are some that are going to be hard. And it's going to be easy to be like, yeah, but... Uh, don't be like metabolic rate lady. Um, ask God to give you ears to hear as you come to church. Um, I, I wish I knew her name because that's, that's, that's not a nice nickname at all. But um, Susan, we'll call her Susan. I don't know. So um, don't be like her. As you come to church, say, God, give me ears to hear. Hopefully you read the text during the week and wrestle with that or other parts of the Bible and just say, God, give me ears to hear. What are you actually expressing to me? As creator, I'd assume that he knows more than I do, so hopefully I can bend to his knowledge rather than trying to ask him to bend to my knowledge. This week, Jesus starts us off with this great tweet. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And essentially, this statement kicks off what I would call kind of a seven-week mini-series within the larger series that we're doing. Maybe like seven weeks, that doesn't sound like a mini-series, but what's going to happen is in this passage, we're going to lay a foundation that the next six weeks after this are going to kind of build on. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I haven't come to abolish the law of the prophets. For those of you who don't know uh, kind of what that means, the, the law really refers to the first five books of uh, the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, what we call the Pentateuch and the Torah. Uh, so maybe that. And then the, the prophets would kind of be the rest. And it's, it's the Old Testament text. It's the first half of the Bible. If you're kind of new to the Bible, it's the part before Jesus shows up. So there's kind of the pre-Jesus stuff. That's the Old Testament. Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish that. And this is a really important teaching, not only for us, but the people then, because some of the things Jesus was teaching, some of the teachers of the law, the like religiously smart people were, they were wondering, they're like, Jesus, like, are you contradicting scripture of old? Like, are you coming and erasing that and teaching something new? And Jesus was saying, certainly not. Jesus is saying, this is a very complimentary teaching. What Jesus does is he actually comes and he takes the teachings of the Old Testament and elevates them. He brings them to greater light and life. And this, for me, if you, I don't know if you've read scripture much. If you've read it a bit, you might, like the New Testament reads pretty quickly. Maybe you've tried reading the Old Testament and you're like, oh, this is a little bit more of a commitment. Um, after studying scripture lots, the, the, the richness of the Old Testament text if you're like me, you'll find that it is so fascinating. This, this is probably, this might be my favorite part of the Sermon on the Mount because there's so much depth in this and I could nerd out on this for a long time. Fortunately, at second service, there's really no time limit because there's not a second service. So I will make sure that I have you guys done by bedtime tonight though. So um, my bedtime, so maybe a little later than yours. But um, we, I'm gonna try to condense this, but uh, man, I, lo I love this. Th this text is so rich and so deep. And if we can actually wrap our minds around this this morning, the next six weeks and, and the few months after that in the Sermon on the Mount, I think will be so much more meaningful and powerful as we position ourselves to hear what God has to say 
not then, rather than looking at the text and saying, well, please just say what I want to hear. Please just arrive at the conclusions I want. So we're in uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20 this morning, four verses. Um, and what I want to do is I want to just read through it with you guys. And I want to go through verse by verse and just offer a little bit of insight and context on each verse, kind of explain them a bit. And then we'll zoom out, kind of go big picture at the end, and we'll kind of look at two big conclusions we can make around this portion of the text, and I hope that that will be helpful as you continue to uh, grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, so verse 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them or to fulfill them. Oh yeah, sorry. I just want to like talk about it. We're reading straight through. All right, sorry. I'm too excited. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any reason or by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus starts off, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. So that's the Old Testament text. And I just want to highlight how insane it would be for Jesus to this mentality that he's come and written off the Old Testament. It's easy, I think, for us to think, well, the Old Testament's pretty archaic. It's got some really specific things to that cultural time. It's old school. It is old school. It's old. It's been around uh, for quite a while, longer than I've been around. And uh, it's it's this old text, but it would be insane for Jesus to come and get rid of that. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is God in flesh, and the Old Testament is just the unraveling of God's grace, his character, his actions, his narrative throughout human history. Jesus didn't come to erase his story. Jesus didn't come to erase the expressions of his grace. In fact, when Jesus and his disciples would think small, when they do small group or Bible study, what were they reading? Just the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. It wasn't like Matthew was running around behind Jesus writing it and being like, here, here's what you just said. You know, like, you know, it came a while after. We, we have a, we, we're, we're pretty lucky to be living in a time where we have this, you know, in, in print and digital format and all that. They had the Old Testament. Probably they were mostly reading from a Greek version called the Septuagint, and they would study that together. This was the foundation. This was the building blocks of Jesus's ministry. He did not come to discontinue the work that he had been doing throughout human history. He came to bring it to greater light and life to intensify, to elevate. So, so we'll get into that a little bit more. So he continues on in verse 18. He says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He says, Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest little bit is going to disappear. So this term heaven and earth, I, I really struggle with like the English translations. We, we need more words because... The word heaven, we often just think of like floating cloud castle with like magical unicorns prancing around and God's just like chilling up on the clouds. And that's not really a biblical picture of heaven, but it's also not what Jesus is talking about here. When Jesus says heaven and earth, it's kind of like in in Genesis 1, if you've read it, God created the heavens and the earth. What he's saying is he's talking about the cosmos, the universe, everything that we know, our entire existence is wrapped up in this time-packed sphere, the universe, everything that's observable and even what we haven't discovered yet, saying Until those disappear, not the smallest little bit of the law will disappear. So first of all, what's he talking about until heaven and earth disappear? And if you haven't read the text, you'll find out that Jesus teaches it 
there's actually going to be a time when human time comes to an end and Jesus is going to come and fulfill all things once and for all and, and kind of recreate everything in a perfect way. But he says, until that time, which, spoiler, it hasn't happened yet in case you think we're living in a perfect paradise right now. Uh, no, just go spend some time with your kids this afternoon and realize, no, we're not there yet. Um, sorry, does that mean? Ever can't, can't understand yet, so it doesn't matter. Um, but he says, not the, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. Some translations say, uh, not, the, not an iota or a dot. Some really, like if you read King James, I think it says jot and tittle and stuff like that. And um, what he's talking about this iota is uh, the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. And this dot is literally what he's saying, that the least stroke of a pen, the smallest little, like, if today you're like, I want to go commit vandalism, but not too bad, and I don't want to get caught, this is this dot that he's talking about, this least stroke is what you want to go do, just like, just like a tiny dot that no one will be able to discover. Not endorsing vandalism, so don't. But um, what he's saying is like the tiniest little bits, you, you flip through the pages of the Old Testament text, what they were reading then, he says, all of this remains intact. He's saying to his opponents, I'm not getting rid of any of this. All of it needs to be considered all of it, none of it will disappear until I finally come and, and bring us into perfection. Then continues on, verse 19, he says, therefore, anyone, because of this, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Saying, if you set apart even the, aside even the smallest of these commands, some translations say, if you even relax one of these commands. If you even just kind of like, ah, you kind of, you know, just kind of chill out on it. This idea of least commands maybe sounds weird. You're like, well, aren't all the commands important? The rabbis, the teachers of the law at Jesus's time, they actually taught that there were like lesser commandments and greater commandments. And maybe that sounds really crazy. Jesus actually, if you read through the gospels, Jesus uses that language quite a bit too. What he's saying is there are some things that are really big and really central. Like let's say, do not murder. That's probably a pretty pretty big one, right? But there are some other things that's like, eh, these are kind of, but Jesus is saying, maybe there are lesser, maybe there are greater. You can make that argument, but all of them are a part of your surrendered life if you want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you relax and erase any of these, if you remove any of these and teach others to do the same, you're called least in the kingdom of heaven. This is kind of an all-in acceptance. This is Kind of like when you buy something uh, off of someone, it, you get it in as-is condition, right? You don't like buy something and then be like, okay, actually I want it to be in better condition and different shape than it is. Now, I'm not calling God as-is, but you, you, get, you get it kind of as-is. It's like when you, make your wedding, when, when you make your wedding vows, you get married, you say, I do. Um, you know, it's not like, I do, but here's my list of contingencies, right? You're like, I will take this imperfect, flawed, person that's standing in front of me that I know has issues, we fought on the way here yesterday or whatever, you say, I do, wives, stop elbowing your husbands right now, but um, I, I do, and you accept them. It's like when I got married to Talisi, and she said, I do, for some crazy reason, she, it wasn't like she's like, I do, but Ryan, I noticed that you've got like kind of an above average size nose, so maybe like plastic surgery down the road, right? I wasn't part of the contingency. I hope you guys can not just stare at my nose and actually listen to some of my words for the rest of the sermon. But, you know, my flaws, she's like, I do. The cool thing about God is there aren't flaws. It's complete perfection. But it needs to be that same as is or I do acceptance where it's just like, yes, all of it. The least commandments, the grace, the smallest stroke of a pen, the smallest letter, all of it is what we're called to embrace. Not to pick and choose. Don't just hear what you want to hear. 
when God says, do this, and you're like, oh, I like that, I'll do that, or it's like, well, do this, it's like, ah, not my jam so much. God isn't a buffet where you just skip over the items you don't like and you just cash in on the items you like. It, it, it's all of it. Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you've read scripture and you understand who the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are, you understand that this is an insane teaching, that your righteousness needs to surpass these people. What the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did was they just spent their time, they were full-time people who were just studying this, they were adding rules, they were defining new rules around how to live righteous lives. Righteousness, I don't know if we always like that word, but it's a good word. It means goodness and purity and, and kind of a reflection of who God is. God is holy. He's apart from sin. We, 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 righteousness kind of embodies that which has nothing to do with sin, but it's pure and it's good and it's uplifting and it's generous and it's kind and, and it's, it's free of impurity. And Jesus says, those guys who are spending all of their time focusing on how can I be better what can I do? Getting together in huddles, saying we need to do this, we need to add. Like they're adding rules on the daily. Your righteousness needs to surpass theirs. Wow. You guys, if anybody wants to leave right now, you can. It's a crazy teaching. But we need to take that seriously. So we'll unpack this a little bit. So let's zoom out a little bit. We see these four verses, and really there are two main observations that I would make and I want to present you with this morning. One is about God's character. You know, we, we've spent a while in the church where maybe, you know, we think, well, the Old Testament is kind of like that, New Testament is like this. We can observe is that God is consistent and unchanging, which is really helpful. You know, when people's stories kind of change and, you know, you're not really sure where they're at and it's hard to have a good relationship with them, God calls us to think and to engage personally with him in a healthy way because he is consistent and unchanging. He is, his character is perfect, so why would he deviate from that? Because he is perfect and holy and righteous. He has no need to change. So God is consistent and he's perfect. So that's our observation about God's character. So then the next observation, I think this is really how I study most of scriptures. Well, that's what we learn about God. So what does it call me to? What's my response? We see there are responses, this thing called righteousness. So let's dive in a little bit more into this observation of God and then we'll look at our response. And like I said, hopefully it's a little bit helpful as you continue to pursue Jesus. So often in the church, I've just heard, you know, people are like, oh, I'm just kind of more of a New Testament Christian. You know, the Old Testament, like, I don't know if this, this part of the Bible really applies to me anymore. I mean, to be fair, like the publishing things and table of contents up there that maybe don't apply to you. But, you know, I don't know if that really applies so much. You know, Jesus came and it's grace now and it's different. In fact, recently I heard someone who's a follower of Jesus say, refer to the Old Testament as being a system of salvation by works, where the New Testament is a system of salvation of grace. What a salvation, salvation by grace. What a really, what an unfortunate understanding of Scripture. And if you're there this morning, I, I just want to lean in and challenge that perception a little bit this morning. Understand this. God has always been a God whose perfection and righteousness and holiness is unattainable by even the greatest of our efforts. We have never, no one has ever been able to have relationship with him as a result of our good works. No one has ever been able to be righteous and pure because of our own works. It is only by his grace. 
It's not like God tried something with people and in the Old Testament, it was like, well, let's try this and they can try to figure it out and then it wasn't working. So he's like, oh man, like contingency plan, back up, let's send Jesus and see if we can now offer grace and do this. The gospel, the goodness of God's grace that he would take the penalty for our sins and he would offer grace and forgive us for our sinfulness and brokenness, that expression is just God's character of love and grace and compassion and that has, has existed far before the creation of the world. The gospel isn't new because people did stuff so God's like, oh, I better come up with a plan. The gospel is simply God just offering his love and grace to his creation that are struggling to, to understand that. So God was like that before the world existed. And then as people start to exist and start to struggle with, with what that looked like and how to live that out, God extends his grace and he offers that and, and he, he allows us to embrace that. And yeah, things look a little different in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's true. There are some things, like in the Old Testament, there were some kind of symbols of worship that we're not required to do anymore, but not because, you know, things have gotten lax or chill or whatever, but because Jesus came and fulfilled them. So if you've read the Old Testament, you know that part of their worship and atonement for sins was that they would take animals and they would sacrifice them, and that was kind of the act of justice coming on them rather than us, and then we would be, the people in the Old Testament would be forgiven. It's like, yes, we don't have to do that anymore, and not because they had to do works and we don't. It's because Jesus came and he was that sacrifice. He gave his life on the cross, so we don't have to do that act. Or in the Old Testament, followers of God were, uh, male followers of God were commanded to be circumcised. It was a symbol of purity and righteousness. It's not that that act made people pure. It's not like, oh, because you've done that, now you're all of a sudden like pure and holy and clean. It was just a response to God's offer that he would make them clean. And then Jesus comes and he becomes that circumcision. He becomes that one who purifies our hearts and offers us that holiness and, and that kind of cleansing. You know, in the Old Testament, they'd worship in the temple. Now Jesus is the temple in whom we worship. But understand this loud and clear, that because Jesus fulfilled things, that's not a call to like chill out and relax and just be like, oh, Jesus did it. It's all good. If anything, I would say that that intensifies the calling. When Jesus came and fulfilled this, what, what was the end of his ministry? He grabs a big old cross and he hauls it up a hill to die on it. And it's not like he's looking back at his disciples and is like struggling on the brink of death. And he's like, yo, you guys just sit back and kick it and just chill. I got this. What did he say? He said, you take up one of these crosses. You come and follow me. You offer the same degree of surrender that I'm offering. So when Jesus comes and says, I fulfilled the law, he's not saying, I've erased that. He's saying, I'm bringing this to life. We need to understand what the law in the Old Testament really is. It's expression of God's character and his promises. When God commands something in the Old Testament, so often I think we read it and we're just like, oh, that's a big commandment or oh, that's tough or whatever. Don't just read it for, oh, this is what someone had to do. Read it to understand this is the kind of the character of God being, why does God call people to do that? It's to engage with him personally and to understand the attributes of what makes him so holy and so perfect. It's hard for me to think of like a good analogy around this, but here's the best I'll do. When I first became, years ago, one of the directors at Pleasant View Bible Camp, I knew that there was a like no cell phone rule for staff working at camp, so they couldn't have their cell phones during the week. What I also knew 
was that a ton of the staff had their cell phones during the week. And so I was like, okay, so we have this rule. I, if any of you have ever gone to Bible college, I don't know if Bible colleges still do it. They make you like sign a contract. It's like, I'll do this and this. And it's the j- joke because no one actually does it. They just sign it and they don't do it. That is like our cell phone rule at camp. And so, um, you know, people would be like, oh, well, and yet for an alarm. But then since they had for an alarm, then they had, you know, whatever. So I struggled because I was like, do we either get rid of the rule and just like, say it is what it is and be honest with ourselves? Or do we say, do we look at the heart behind the rule and take it to the next level? You see, the idea of not having cell phones at camp isn't because we're like anti-tech or, you know, we just think, you know, the, the internet's evil or anything like that. The reality is, is that that rule embodied a huge part of the mission of what Pleasant View is about. We were, camp is for the campers. We were a camp that was there to prioritize and put the campers in the primary position and serve them the best way we could. So campers weren't allowed to have cell phones, so why should we have cell phones? And why create that unfairness? But furthermore, why put distractions in our way so that we have less attention and focus that we can offer to our campers? This isn't really a good analogy for God's law, but what I'm saying is that Jesus came and he said, listen, these laws, they're good and they represent God's character. It's not just don't do this and do this. It's engage with God and his character and his goodness and his grace and his mission here on earth. Engage with God in the gospel. But when Jesus comes, it's not to relax that. If anything, I'd almost say he intensifies it. I've often heard people say, well, you know, I read the Old Testament, man, it'd be hard to live on those days. I, I, don't, I don't know like, if it's actually harder. Jesus comes, and we're gonna, over the next six weeks, he's going to work through some of the Old Testament laws, and he's going to say, yeah, here's that law, but we need to be aiming for way up here. He's going to intensify it. With the cell phone rule, we just brought it to a whole new level, and we eradicated cell phones at camp. And honestly, I think it was great. I don't know, you could ask the other staff members who all their cell phones I took away. Maybe they disagree. But, um, you know, Jesus came and he said, guys, we need to live this out. I am calling you to something higher, something bigger than yourself. Your righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This is a big mission that Jesus is calling people to. He's not eradicating anything. He's not erasing his past narrative. He's coming and saying, guys, we're bringing this thing to the front. We're, we're, we're blowing this thing up, and it's going to be huge. That's God's character expressed through the Old Testament, which Jesus comes to fulfill in some pretty incredible, incredible ways. So what's our response? Well, we see it at the end, that our righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law that we need to keep the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same if we want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, this isn't just like Jesus has got it, so kind of whatever. This is, we need to take all that God has invited us into, not pick and choose and say, God, I want to surrender my life completely to you and embody your law and your teachings. Now, you might be here and be like, Ryan, like, I'm out. That's crazy. That's, that's impossible. And I would say, I'm not even going to respond to that with an argument. I'll just say, just hold on for a few weeks when we read Matthew 5:48, when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then we can wrestle with that a little bit more because these are hard teachings. So what's Jesus actually calling us to? Do we say, oh, that's too much. I'll just hear it the way I want to hear it, or I can't do it, so I'm just going to kick it and just chill where I am. I think we should take his teachings seriously and say, Jesus has come to fulfill the law, a real tangible expression of God's grace. And what has that called me to? 
a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, a righteousness that embodies all of the commands, the least and the greatest. I think we do these weird kind of divisions in our mind, and a lot of it's cultural. I think it's our culture. So on one hand, I think we think about people that are living righteous lives that have high moral standards. We all know them, right? Goody two-shoes, holier-than-thou people, self-righteous, legalistic people. And I think that's where our mind often goes. When someone's like living way up here in kind of moral purity and they're making really good choices, I know I've done it a lot of times. I think I just kind of mock them because I feel uncomfortable because I'm like, I should probably be doing that, but I'm not. But, you know, our our culture would say, well, people who are just living really clean, good, pure lives, they're like self-righteous. They're probably proud, arrogant, judgmental people. So we categorize them over there. But then I think on the other end, what we do is we say, well, it's not by works. It's not by works, so it's by grace. So I'm just covered in God's grace, which is true, but then we say, well, because it's grace, I shouldn't be trying to do it by works, so then we just chill out and just kind of do nothing. And it's like God is on this mission to invite us into something big through his grace, and we meet that with apathy and inaction. It's not like Jesus came on his mission to live here on earth, the God who created the universe to live here on earth and give his life to us to say, yeah, just chill out, like, you know, Great, I'm giving my life for you, so please just sit back, relax, and do nothing. These are really unfair divisions that we make. Jesus calls our righteousness to be greater than this camp over here. And I think we struggle with that because like, well, I don't want to just be like this. You know, I don't want to just work at it. And you shouldn't just be working at it. But understand the transformation that happens when you embrace Jesus' forgiveness and grace and you allow him to over overcome your life and to fill you. Because yeah, the righteousness of people who are just studying laws and rules and trying to do that on their own is very limited. But someone who's surrendered their life to Jesus and been infused with his grace and has the spirit of the most high God living inside of them, what can stop that? I mean, what has a greater potential for righteousness? Someone who just in their own effort is trying to figure it out and be great? Or someone who is filled with the greatness and the glory of God. I sang a song earlier that said that God silences sin. But so often I think we're happy to just be here and like, I, I'm, you know, I'm covered by God's grace, but I'll let my sin just scream out loudly in my life. I'll just live my life however I want because God just forgives me. He does, but he doesn't give you that grace to sit there and do nothing with it. God gives you grace to call you to something big. And this is what I'd say, because God doesn't change our lives can be changed. I'd even say should be changed. God is consistent because he is perfect and he's holy. And when we meet a holy God, when we think in, when we engage personally with him, when he fills our lives, our next step isn't like, okay, cool. I'm just going to sit back and chill. I'm just going to relax. It's like, wow, I've been filled with this incredible gift of the grace and the gospel. Now what? What's the mission that God's called me to? And Jesus puts it pretty clearly here, but if we miss it, it's because we just hear what we want to hear. We just want to look like everyone else in the world. We just want to live a normal life. We just want to take it easy and not have to struggle and suffer. Because if all of a sudden our lives have us producing righteousness that takes us way over here, way past the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, yeah, people people will think that's weird. People think you're kind of weird. That will cause some friction in your relationships. And yeah, I mean, it's the same for the guy that you're following, right? That was Jesus' life. And I just want to encourage you guys, read this text and understand that Jesus is taking this rich expression, the Old Testament text, and we're going to 
kind of work through parts of it in the next six weeks and saying, this is who I am. And because of who I am, you were destined for greatness. You can have incredible things happen in your life because God's power, his spirit, his love and his grace and his compassion can overwhelm you and fill you entirely. And you call the servers forward and uh, Neil and Rebecca to come back out. And we're going to take communion this morning. And um, it's actually really great that we're doing this because um, with this text, uh, right now in my personal devotional times, uh, I'm reading the Bible Project's Bible in a Year plan. And I'm in the book of Exodus right now. If you've read that, I'm kind of in the more interesting first half where it's narrative before they have all the instructions on how to build stuff. But what happens, if you know the narrative, is that uh, the nation of Israel is enslaved by their evil oppressors, uh, Egypt. They're, they're slaves and they're being beaten down and, and it's awful. So God looks out at his people with grace and love and empathy and says, I don't want this for them. I want to rescue my people. So this crazy story, God rescues his people and he sets them free from their oppressors. And part of that is this feast, part of that is he commands them to celebrate this feast called the Passover, Passover, where they'll always remember what happened, where the oppression that was poured out on them and the judgment that came out, well, what they would do is they would sacrifice a lamb as part of this uh, Passover, and, and that lamb would kind of take the punishment for evil. That lamb would kind of be the one that receives the justice and the judgment so that they didn't have to. And the amazing thing is that Jesus the guy who comes to fulfill the law is the one who steps in and says, you guys, I will be that lamb for you. I'll climb up on the cross and I'll, and I'll let myself be killed to show you how much I love you and care about you. And what an incredible gift. And so when Jesus came, he actually started this feast and a lot of you probably know about it. It's called communion where he said, remember how I became the new sacrificial lamb. Remember how I fulfilled this part of the law so that you don't have to take the punishment so that you can be invited. And we do this thing called communion where we take a cracker and some juice and we remember Jesus's body and blood that was ripped to shreds out of an act of compassion and love for us. And it's incredible. As we take communion this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna be singing a song called Holy, Holy, Holy. Holiness means apart from sin, no evil, just completely pure and perfect. And that's the God that we get to know and have relationship with. Even in all our struggles, we get to have relationship with him and he loves us and cares about us. And that is insane. But as we do that, don't take that lightly. What I want you guys to do, I want to invite you while we're singing this song to reflect on the words that God is perfectly holy and he's perfect, he's righteous and he's good. Free from all evil. And that when Jesus came to, to, to express this to us on the cross, it wasn't him changing things from before, but what it was was him taking all that love and compassion that we see represented in God's creation and the narrative of the Old Testament text, and him taking a step closer to us and saying, It looks like you guys are struggling. And he steps out and he, he puts more of himself out on the line and pours himself out for us. But that step toward us isn't, uh, I've taken a step towards you, so you have to just chill because we're one step closer. That step towards us is an invitation. As he takes this step towards us, he says, come on, come on, take a step closer to me. Let me take over your life. Surrender your life and let me be the one who guides you in righteousness. And your life does change. And it's hard and it's messy and it's difficult. But that's this gift that Jesus gives us through his blood and his sacrifice on the cross. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never surrendered any part of your life to Jesus before. You're like new to this. Communion's a great time to do that. 
understand that Jesus forgives you for any missteps you've taken in life, that he offers you grace and compassion and says all the baggage and guilt that you've carried around in your life, let's get rid of that. Let's give you a fresh start and come follow me and join me in this journey. What a beautiful invitation. If you've been following Jesus for a while, this is what I want you to think about. That step that Jesus takes closer to us, what's that step that we can take closer to him? What are the areas of our lives that we haven't surrendered? Because if your life isn't producing righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, I don't think that's like a badge of honor to say, well, I'm not legalistic. I think that's a moment to have humble and somber introspection and say, what areas of my life am I still holding on to? And living out my own desires and fighting against God and, and, and not allowing him to be Lord of my life in that. What have I not surrendered? And just... Spend some time. Hold on to the cup. Hold on to the cracker. We're going to take it together as we sing. Reflect on that a bit. I'm so thankful that you guys decided to spend your time here this morning. And I hope it was helpful as you continue to follow Jesus. Hope to see you next week. Jesus is going to be talking about murder. So uh, buckle up for that. And I hope you guys have a great week until then. See you next Sunday.